Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Tonight's programme is actually the first of two on the same theme. And here's a nostalgic musical clue from Ray Noble and his orchestra, recorded in 1934, with Al Bowley in charge of the vocals. You ought to be in pictures, you're wonderful to see. You ought to be in pictures, how beautiful you would be. Your voice would thrill a nation, your face would be adored. You'd make a great sensation with wealth and fame, your reward. And if you should kiss the way you kiss when we are all alone, you'd make every girl a man a fan worshipping at your throne. Daddy, 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 you ought to shine as brightly as Jupiter and Mars. You ought to be in pictures, my star of stars. to be in pictures and award yourself 10 bonus points if you listen to that and said cinema yes in these next two episodes of the archive room we'll be hearing some wonderful stories from the days when in the words of one manager the island's many cinemas were packed to suffocation Tonight, we'll hear from cinema-goers, from cinema-managers, and from Fred Moore, who looks back to 1946 on the challenges, but mostly the comedy, of working with the crew on the making of I See a Dark Stranger, a World War II spy drama filmed on the island starring Deborah Carr and Trevor Howard. And to this day, it's still described by film buffs as as suspenseful as Hitchcock, but with a touch of humour and romance. But first, let's eavesdrop on a conversation between David Collister and Mr Charles Kelly. Born in 1907, he's taking us back to cinema going around the time of the First World War. This was 1915-16. There was the Strand, the Picture House, the Pier Pavilion. I think those were the three picture houses. Pier Pavilion... You could get in a Saturday afternoon matinee for a penny or a d- an empty jam jar. The yeah. jam jar was all important. Where do you get the jam jars from? Your mother, I suppose. Oh, yes. Mother or scrounge them from a neighbour if you couldn't have scrounged <laughs> them anywhere. Uh, it was only the Pier Pavilion, I think, you could do it in. Oh, you yeah. couldn't do it in the Strand or the Picture House. Rush and Abbey were making jam at that, that time, yeah. and marmalade in particular. So the jars were in short and supply? And I can remember. Quinny's low loader carts go, going along the, the North Quay with boxes of oranges on. Uh. And we kids were after them, jumping on the back and seeing if you pinch one out. And if you got one, they were as bitter as gall. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it, a Saturday afternoon thing, the pictures? Saturday afternoon pictures, yes. But uh, they had ran serials. Silent oh, films. Silent films. Oh yes, silent films. Mr. Jordan kept the the jeweler shop alongside the Strand. Mm-hmm. He was the manager. 
Was he? Yes. Yeah. They used to have songs. To open up, they always had a song. And there was one, The Man in the Laughing Mask, and there was a song. When the man with the laughing mask comes around your way, don't be afraid, don't get dismayed. Just take his hand and say, how do, Mr. Bogey Boo? When the man with the laughing mask comes round your way, he'll bring good luck to you. Don't get scared of his ugly face. There's no harm when he's round the place, for he's only the movie Boogie Boogie Boo. <laughs> Mr. Jordan would be up in front of the screen conducting us kids and oh, we'd be right. yelling away at the tops of our voices. <laughs> then when it'd come on the screen we'd be shouting, look out behind you! <laughs> Myself included, I suppose. <laughs> when the villain would be coming on the screen, you know. Yeah. And the pianist would be playing away like Billy O. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then at a night time, between the two houses, two houses every night, one half past six, the other was, was at eight o'clock. But the roof would slide open to ventilate the, uh, the cinema. cinema did it? Yeah, and you could feel the hot air going up and the cold air coming in. Yes. Oh, lovely. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You could see the smoke going <laughs> out into the night sky. The films didn't have film stars in those days, did they? Oh, but... yes. Oh, yes. Bill Cody, Tom Mix. There was another one, Lewis Stone. He was an English actor. Yes. Lewis Stone. Pearl White. Oh, yes. Do you remember so, her? Now, Pearl White was getting tied to the railway tracks on the train. Yes, or, or on the on the, saw, on the sawmill. Circular saw would be coming up to her. <laughs> the kids would be shouting. And there was a song about her, was there? Oh, yes. My little pearl of the army, pearl of my heart so true. You're the queen of the pictures, screen, and the pride of the whole world through. While the band plays Yankee Doodle, Rue Britannia too. There's many a lad who to die would be glad for a pearl of a girl like you. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and you used to sing that in the cinema? You used to you? sing that before the, uh, that sure. episode came out, <laughs> yes. I didn't know that they sang songs like that then. Oh, yes. Did they put the words up on a screen as well, did they? Oh, yes. Yes. The words were flashed on uh, little ball bounce and some oh, the bouncy ball, yeah. yes, to keep the time. <laughs> and you had the cowboys and Indians. Oh, we the cowboys and Indians. And hear the pianist playing the, for the horses galloping. Yes, yes. Wonderful stuff, oh, really. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. was. You must have seen a lot of Charlie Chaplin's in your time. Oh then. yes, you saw Charlie <laughs> Chaplin's bending the lamppost over and gassing the villain. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful stuff, isn't it, really? Yes, it yeah. is. Happy days, were they? Oh, happy days, yes. <laughs> <laughs> happy days. Now, what about the west of the island? Was there ever a cinema in Peel? Eddie Lease has the answer. You know, we had a cinema in Peel, 1920s. Saturday afternoon, pay a penny and go down to the hut which stood where Dickie Crane now has his car showroom. And this was run by... Did, did you ever 
he have Howard Hughes? Oh yes, what the American Howard Hughes? No, no, no. no. This was the Peel Howard Hughes. No, no. He wasn't. He wasn't a Peel man, but he and his wife, they were a bit eccentric. They walked around the streets of Peel, all dressed up as if they were taking part in a film, you know, yes. and I believe that they had been on the stage at one time, uh, but Howard Hughes, he used to have a little projector in his shed out there at the back, he used to have these old cowboy films, black and white, you know, mm. absolutely marvellous it was, and also, he used to have pierrots in the summer for mm. the visitors, uh, where, where would they be? Uh, on the sand, just in front of the Marine Hotel there. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we got a photograph down in the museum off the stage there, everything, chairs and everything out in the front. Yeah. As popular as could be, you know. He was absolutely marvellous, was, uh, was Howard Hughes, and he ran this little picture place. And so, from cinema goers, let's hear now from cinema managers. Here's David again in the company of two cinema managers employed by the Palace Company. They're Charles Draper and Laurie Kissick. Well, let me begin uh, with you, Charles, and, and ask you when you got into this cinema management with the uh, with the Palace Company, because you, you'd had experience in the world of films before you managed cinemas here, didn't you? Yes. Tell me uh, about that. Well, when I left school, I joined the Western Electric Company, who were uh, a company manufacturing and installing sound equipment in studios as well as projectors in cinemas. And uh, after I'd um, learnt all about wiring and things like that, I was appointed as assistant to their resident engineer installing sound equipment in Denham Studios. Really? And uh, we used to work on the first films being shot using mostly portable equipment because the final equipment hadn't then been installed and uh, it was quite interesting for a young man to meet all these film stars and chat to them like any any other member of the staff. So you came to the Isle of Man to work here at some stage and I remember seeing you in the Strand Cinema most of all I think. Yes, that's right. I was here during the war for two, two and a half years at Valkyrie and uh, when I returned to the Western Electric Company after the war, I couldn't find anywhere to live adjacent to film studios. So uh, I decided to come back to the island. I'd made lots of friends here. And uh, I was appointed as manager of the Strand Cinema when I arrived. May 1946, I used to work as manager of the Strand Cinema during the summer season mm. and then in the winter we all moved around because the bigger buildings used to be closed such as the Royalty and the Crescent cinemas were closed and uh, I w then went doing the holiday reliefs at all the cinemas that the Palace Company possessed. You've been in all of them? Yes, Strand Cinema, Port Erin, the uh, Pavilion at Peel, and the Avenue Onken, and uh, all the Douglas cinemas. Yes. Were you a film fan yourself then? Not no. really. I used to enjoy some films. Very rarely did I ever see a film right through, but uh, on occasions I used to pick out odd bits of the film that I enjoyed, 
such as the um, No Limit film, for instance. Oh, you yeah. know, the funniest bits. <laughs> I used to love going into the hall to hear the shrieks of laughter. Yeah. yeah. Well, Laurie Kizik, I remember seeing you at the Royalty. Were you primarily a cinema manager or not? No, no, no. I was only doing relief work then. I started with the company in 1935, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in the office... And in the summertime, I worked at the palace as a money taker or taking tickets. And uh, when I came back after the war, I was assistant manager at the palace with George Farragher. I was assistant from 46 up to 1957 and manager from 58 up to 65. I was more or less in live entertainment all the time. I've seen both of you fellas standing out there in your monkey suits many a time, <laughs> and you had to wear these dinner suits then, did you? I mean, oh, was that, yeah. that was yes. law in the palace company, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I did one night at the Regal Cinema without socks on. <laughs> it was pointed out to me by one of the usurettes in the circle. <laughs> Well, how did you manage the queues? Because there must have been colossal queues in the 40s and 50s. Oh, yes. From the Strand Cinema point of view, we weren't allowed to um, queue in Strand Street because otherwise it prevented shoppers from looking into the shop windows. So we used to have to queue in Howard Street opposite and the doorman used to stand over there and I used to send the people across to it and they queued down Howard Street and then along the promenade and on some occasions round the next street where the butchers is on the corner of uh, Strand Street, yeah, you know. Yeah. I could see the end of the queue forming at the end of Strand Street. What, queuing even in wet weather as well, yes. was it? Yeah. Yes, I remember oh, yes. one night I was doing one night relief. It was a Saturday night. It was pouring rain. The first house was full, but at the Strand you could push everybody out through into Market Street, through the back, you see. Yes. So I filled two waiting rooms with maybe a hundred people in each. Yes. And I decided to bring some people in on the staircase, standing two together, you see. And uh, that was about quarter to eight, with the show finishing at eight o'clock. And everybody was just hinkadory. And the building inspector walked in, <laughs> and he had me. <laughs> well, he'd be like the fire officer so I was today. Reported. Oh, yeah. oh, you reported, were you? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. On the carpet next day, was it? Yeah. But the people who I let in out of the rain were very pleased that I'd done so. <laughs> yes. Well, you must have met some of the film stars over the years. I know, Charles, that uh, Anna Neagle came to the island several times. Yes. But she you came, she yes. came for film premieres sometimes, didn't yes, she? Yes, that's right. It was due to uh, Billy Hughes, the cinema manager, you know, in charge of all the cinema side. He was friendly with Herbert Wilcox, who was Anna Neagle's husband, and produced the films. And it was due to their friendship that... Uh, they used to show their films first as a world premiere in the Isle of Man. Being a cinema manager, though, it wasn't really a glamorous job, was it, I'm sure? Not really, no. We used to uh, go through all the seats after the show. <laughs> the object of it, really, was to see that there were no cigarette butts yeah. burning there. Uh, the operator used to do the circle and I used to do the uh, ground floor. Yeah. And... Uh, as well as looking for the um, cigarette butts, we also looked for lost property. And on one occasion, I remember seeing what looked like a bag of sweets, and I picked this up and looked in it, and there was a piece of toffee with a full set of noshers. (laughs) 
were stuck in it and they were never claimed. <laughs> oh dear, dear, dear. <laughs> And finally, being involved in film production may sound quite exciting, even glamorous, rubbing shoulders with the stars and working with professionals. But as Fred Moore discovered back in 1946, the reality could be quite different. He got the chance to work on the making of I See a Dark Stranger, a World War II spy film starring Deborah Carr. An Isle of Man signpost outside a French town that's odd. But we started this tale at the wrong moment. It really began much earlier. It's the story of a very strange little character named Bridie Quilty. The story was actually set in Ireland in a fictional town of Ballygarry but the filming was done in various locations all around the Isle of Man. Here Fred describes how he first got involved. They got hold of my employer to see if they could hire the van because the camera was on a big stand on yes. rubber tyres. Yes. So they engaged the, the van for the fortnight and I was the driver sent to do this work. Moving their gear around. Yes, mm -hmm. and the headquarters was in the um, electric tram sheds at Derby Castle. And after the first day, and it had all this equipment aboard, we had to carry big planks put down for the camera to run on when we were working on rough ground. So I said to the uh, producer, would it be possible that I could leave this stuff on the van of a night and uh, save me unloading and loading every day? And he said, if it's locked up, fair enough. Well, we were in several locations. I remember one, it was rather amusing. You know the Orisdale Road near the Blackboards? Mm -hmm. We stopped there one morning, and I don't know what the reason was or what they were going to do. But the first thing they ever done when we got to a location was send somebody off for tea and cakes. And they sent... <laughs> They sent a five-ton lorry that day off to Castletown to get tea and cakes. <laughs> well, while we were there, this is a rather amusing bit, there was a man came along the road with a cow on a rope. And the director said to me, what's that man bringing the cow along the road on the rope for? I said, he's going up to that farm to see Mr. Cow. <laughs> and that was Orisdale Farm. <laughs> yes. Well, the farmhouse is one side of the road, the yard was the other. They trotted off up and I meet with them behind the man with the cow and it was the daughter of the farm that came out to let the bull out and there was Arfalis in the gateway of the yard with their cameras taking pictures. <laughs> but why we were ever at that location, we, we stood there for a couple of hours and then hmm. away. Well the next place I was with them, we went down the uh, Sound Road. We didn't go as far as the Sound, about halfway down we opened the gate, turned left, and we didn't cross the field, and they were taking pictures in on the rocks over there. And then another day, we were at the Nyabal, and what was to happen? Deborah was to come in a fishing boat to um, the Nyabal, and she was to be put on a rowing boat and rowed in. And while this was happening, in the little cafe on the corner at the bottom of the Nyabal there, and Mrs. Clegg had it, they lived in the thatch cottage. It was all laid out for our lunch. And just as we were starting the lunch, the director shouted, break, and when they break, you break, everybody moves. And what had happened was, it was too stormy for Deborah to be rowed ashore, so we had to go back to Peel. Left the lunch, Fenella Beach. We went all into Fenella Beach and up on the cliff there, and she was to tip her grandfather 
over the cliff. It was a dummy, of course, in a wheelchair. Actually, she didn't do that job. The assistant director put her Mac on, rolled his trousers up, put her <laughs> scarf over his head, yeah. and uh, he'd a rope around his waist in case he happened to go over as well. And I had the other end of the rope hanging on in case he went over. <laughs> At Union Mills, I don't know whose pony and trap they had, but they came down through the village in the pony and trap. They stopped at the top of the steps. Those days it was steps going down to the station. They made a slipway after. And she was to go down and get in the train. But there was a few slip-ups, apart from waiting for weather hours sometimes, doing it over and over again. And when they got the perfect weather, right at the bottom of the steps, there was a urinal facing the steps, gents. And they got a perfect picture. And just as she got down there, there was a chap who came out of the urinal buttoning his trousers. <laughs> well, that had to be scrapped. <laughs> then they got another fairly good picture with weather, and the guard put her in the coach, the <coughs> railway coach, and instead of going back to his own brake van then, he got in with her. Well, that spoiled that, so mm -hmm. it had to be taken again. Mm. But they eventually got it uh, right. We didn't see George Hogg, the station master, in the film at all. I don't think he was in it. He was too peeved that uh, they turned his station into a, an Irish station. They didn't like, he didn't like that? Well, I was sent out beforehand to cover up Union Mills. And if you remember, under the wall, as you look over the wall from the road, there's this three-legged three, three man yes, in, made in stone. In, in spar stone. Yes. From the Stony Mountain. And uh, I had to cover that up with artificial grass. And he was such a nice man, he was my next-door neighbour, always pleasant. And he blew up this day, and nobody turning my station into a bloody Irish station. <laughs> <laughs> and he wouldn't let me work, so mm. I had to ring for the producer to come out and uh, sort things out. There was some doubt, I think, about whether Deborah Carr was on the arm, but she definitely was. Oh, Deborah was there, yes. Mm. Uh, she was only about 19 or 20 then, lovely girl. Well, then there was a job at Laxey. They wanted two soldiers to get in the tram car with her at Laxey, and they were going to pay two pounds to each soldier for to do this. Well, I'd been in the home guard and had the military uniform, and uh, I said, well, I'll do that, and I'll bring a mate. And, but it ended up we weren't allowed to. They had to have soldiers, regulars. Uh -huh. They got regular soldiers from headquarters, garrison at Madison. Which hotel was used on the front, Fred? They were using the Athol. And, and did it last just a few days, or was it weeks? Or I was about two weeks running yeah. around with them, yeah. yes. Because there was an awful lot of waste time, you know, waiting for weather. And, and in the finish, we all reported at the Athol one morning, as usual, nine o'clock in the morning. And they were all getting in taxis heading for the boat. So I said, what's, what's happening? And Phil in charge said, uh, oh, the weather's too bad, we're going to finish it in Ireland. It they went, a, just left like that? Yes. It was a, to be an Irish picture anyway. Mm. And they said, we'll finish it in Ireland. And the paymaster said, uh, we've left money for you people to be, you know, tips, I suppose they meant, for doing the work, but we never got a halfpenny. <laughs> so that ended that.
Well, in cinema terms, that's the end of the reel for this week. But we'll reload and switch the projector on again just after six next Thursday evening, when, very topically, I'll be sharing some wonderful stories about the making of the TT classic, No Limits. The voice of George Formby, some very honest revelations from his co-star Florence Desmond, and some cracking stories from Jack Cannell, father of TT commentary legend Jeff Cannell. And so, as we gently close the door to the archive room, just for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company this evening, whilst I, as always, leave the last word to our favourite radio rambler, Howard Hampton. Till next week, so long, you sir. The Nation Station makes rain.